It's Friday, February 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine still looms, with officials saying it could happen within several days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, appearing at the United Nations, laid out what a Russian invasion could look like, saying that missiles and bombs could drop across Ukraine, communications would be jammed, and cyber attacks could shut down key institutions. Officials said that Russia could be trying to set up a pretext, such as a violent event, that would justify an invasion. Nahal Tusi, senior foreign affairs correspondent at Politico, joins us for more. Next, gunshot detection devices that are used in cities across the U.S. are getting criticism for their high cost and whether they are effective at reducing crime. One such company is called ShotSpotter, who has contracts with about 120 police agencies who pay $65,000 to $90,000 a year for each square mile of service. The other angle to this is that ShotSpotter helps police departments apply for federal grants so they can afford the technology. John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital, joins us for how ShotSpotter is winning police contracts and fighting criticism. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Our information indicates clearly that these forces, including ground troops, aircraft, ships, are preparing to launch an attack against Ukraine in the coming days. Joining us now is Nahal Tusi, senior foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Nahal. Thanks for having me. Well, the tensions are ongoing with Ukraine and Russia. The invasion of Ukraine appears to be imminent. Officials are saying within several days, possibly. We saw an appearance by Secretary of State Antony Blinken before the United Nations, kind of laying out what would happen in the case that Russia does invade Ukraine. As I mentioned, we've been going back and forth. We've been hearing that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Still just ha- hasn't happened just yet. But what did uh, the Secretary of State say? And, and you know, then we'll get into all, all the other stuff surrounding this. Well, basically, he said, look, uh, this is a moment of peril. Uh, I'm here to try to stop a war uh, as opposed to trying to start one. And he basically said that Russia is very much built up its troops. There's just no real sign that it's actually done any sort of withdrawal of troops, as the Russians had been signaling earlier this week. Um, in fact, we hear there's like 7,000 more troops <laughs> that have been brought in the last few days. And that, you know, if it invades, it's going to be based on a, a pretext, uh, some sort of a false operation, like claiming that, you know, the Ukrainians shelled Russian points or something like that. It's going to involve aerial bombardment and, you know, a number of other moves that he is predicting uh, the Russians will take. You know, it's sort of a common sense in the sense that war nowadays is increasingly hybrid and a lot of it is about information and manipulation of information. But it really is something to hear it just laid out like that. That's really interesting. You made mention in the article, too, about You know, so Blinken coming in and kind of giving the step by step of how it would go really is our chance to counter the disinformation propaganda from Russia in as close to real time as possible. And that's just an interesting notion because we even heard, I guess, on the Russian side, they're saying we're ratcheting up the tensions because we keep responding to everything. Other people have said we've been going back and forth with this for a few weeks now that the attack could be imminent. But, you know, is it doing more harm than good trying to counter as we go? You know, uh, I talked to a lot of people about this and the sense still is that it's doing more good to do this than harm. The idea being that 
the U.S. wants to prevent Russia from having a leg to stand on when it comes to deciding to invade or writing the history about when we invade. And so the sense is that if we can just lift the veil on this plan or point out this operation or predict what he's going to do, it's basically makes it harder for me uh, to do it. And by him, I mean Russian leader Vladimir Putin. And so it's just, so far the sense is that among the intelligence community officials and others, that it's a good thing that we are being so proactive on the information front. There are some who are a little worried. They wonder if we're releasing too much information. They wonder about the credibility of the U.S. if none of these things come to pass. Will we look like the boy that cried wolf? But I think at this point, you know, they have decided, they being the Biden administration, has decided that it is better off telling people what's going to happen or in a bid to prevent it, yeah. essentially. And you mentioned, you know, this pretext for an invasion. So we were also hearing Ukraine and Russia going back and forth, saying that there are already some shelling going back, you know, that they're trying to hit each other. Ukraine accused Russia of shelling a kindergarten. I, I, I've heard that there's already some pictures circulating around from that. Yeah, that's right. There were reports that a couple of people were wounded. I think they were adults in the kindergarten shelling. The Russians, you know, claim it's the other side. I mean, it's it's really hard to know who to believe in part because it's hard to access some of the sites. But at the same time, in a way, this is like the most open source friendly war as well, because there's so many, you know, individuals and companies and private firms and all these other things who are able to actually track this stuff in real time, whether it's social media or through satellite pictures or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this is, it's one of those situations where, look, at the end of the day, if the Russians want to invade and they say something happened, and we insisted it didn't, like, they don't necessarily care. Like, they are going to do what they want to do because to them, and will justify the means, right? right. And so I, I think to a degree, this is um, one of the reasons that the U.S. is doing this is to keep allies on board to, and to make sure that when we get, give out all this information that other countries, even if they're not necessarily our allies, are going to look at this stuff and be like, okay, wait a minute, this is not cool, Russia. And so you can have as much of a united front against Moscow as possible. As we mentioned, you know, we're trying to fight some of that disinformation in real time, as close to it as possible. How is this playing out in the Russian media? Because I know a lot of the Russian media is still state-owned, things like that. What are we seeing on that front? So much of Russian media is state-controlled. I mean, they basically write things from the Russian perspective without a lot of questioning. For instance, uh, <laughs> uh, this was my, one of my favorites. You know, Russia recently cut back its staff at its embassy in Ukraine, right? But the way that the Russian media wrote it was, Russia is optimizing its staffing at its <laughs> embassy in Ukraine. They never actually said in, in you know, the story that I read on, on one of the sites, like that they're cutting staff. They just said, they're optimizing it. They, and they just went with that. And there was no questioning of it. And so it's this kind of thing, you're, you know, you're also seeing them carry just kind of, you know, statements that the Russian uh, officials are alleging, you know, about like, I mean, th this in particular is really egregious, like uh, uh, um, accusing Ukraine of genocide, which is just, there's just no basis for that. These types of things are, you know, they, they don't get the kind of critical reception that the U.S. would if it was to try to pull something like that. I mean, frankly, when the U.S. is releasing the information, a lot of journalists have been questioning its intelligence because, you know, we remember what happened with Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. And while there is certainly reporting of the allegations from the U.S., there is some skepticism in trying to bring more context to it, whereas you mm -hmm. just don't see that really on the Russian media side.
Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough situation. All signs are pointing to that something could be happening very imminent. President Biden has said it. All of our officials have said it. You know, it's going to be one of these wait and see moments uh, until it just actually well, does happen and, and the fighting continues. It could already be happening. There are cyber attacks being reported in Ukraine, massive yeah. ones. There have been other things that have been that just we, we could already have started the war. So let's not let's not forget that. Nahal Tusi, senior foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. It starts with acoustic sensors that are placed on buildings or lampposts throughout a neighborhood. If a gun is fired anywhere in the area, multiple sensors detect and timestamp the sound. The precise location of the gunshot is determined based on the amount of time it takes for the sound of the gunshot to travel to each individual sensor. Joining us now is John Shoopy, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting story you wrote up about gunshot detection technology. A lot of this has to do with one specific company called ShotSpotter. They're getting programs going with law enforcement all over the country. And a lot of what they're doing is helping these law enforcement agencies use federal grant money to pay for the services, which can be, you know, $100,000 or more, depending on how much the technology is being used. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Let's start off with what SpotShotter is and how it works. ShotSpotter is a technology company, and they install audio sensors in a community, depending on where the city has decided they have a big gunshot problem, a gun violence problem. And those detectors use AI with human review after the fact to triangulate and determine when a gunshot has gone off in a particular place and identify up to a few feet, a few dozen feet of where that gunshot came out and then alert police to go to that location and try to investigate from there. So on its face, it seems like pretty good technology, useful technology that police can employ, but there's been a lot of criticisms about the technology, the cost, obviously, that it targets uh, black and Latino neighborhoods, mostly different things like that. Correct. Um, One thing that made us interested in looking at ShotSpotter from the get-go was that they've suddenly become very high profile. They're raking in a lot of contracts with police. Police love it during a time of increased gun violence around the country. And like you said, there's been this wave of criticism that the company has largely been able to overcome and continue to get new contracts. And these critics raise questions about how accurate the technology is, whether it can distinguish gunshots from other types of loud noises like fireworks, and whether the alerts make police officers more likely to have bad encounters with citizens once they arrive at the scene of an alert, that there's gunshots recently happening or still ongoing and kind of have that sort of mentality of being very aggressive at the scene. Um, And that is what a lot of the civil rights advocates are concerned about. Let's talk a little bit more about those measures of success for the technology, right? That's under criticism from this. And one of the things say uh, that critics say is that, it, well, we don't know if it actually reduces crime rate. If having this technology in place helps to reduce crime after the fact. But, you know, my thought on this is that this is more of a reactive type of technology. It's not predictive. So, you know, a good measure could be do police get to the scene faster or something like that. So tell me a little bit about uh, these measures of success that the company uses itself and then critics say, you know, maybe it's not working. Right, correct. One of the things that ShotSpotter, and by the way, you're correct that 
it's more of an after the fact technology that isn't going to allow police to understand where crime is about to happen. It's all reactive. And what it does is the reason police like it so much is that it's, uh, it, it allows officers to arrive at the scene faster, raising the chances that they find, say, spent shell casing or other type of evidence, find perhaps a suspect or a victim, save that victim's life or get them to the hospital faster, raising the chances that the person will survive. And they think that's good enough. But there's also the claims that ChatSpotter makes on its website and other people use to um, explain to their mayors and city councils the reason they want to buy it is because it could bring down, help bring down gun violence rates. And the results on that are very mixed. In many places where academics or journalists have looked into the effects, they've found no direct correlation of shot spotter technology being deployed and the gun rates going up or down. And in some cases, gun rates have increased. So I think a fair thing to say is that the results are mixed on that. And that adds to the debate over this technology. Because it's very expensive, like you said, yeah. it's $90,000 to $90,000 per square mile per year. Yeah, we'll talk about the money in just a moment. Uh, you know, ShotSpotter for themselves, they say that their technology is 97% accurate, at least in identifying where the gunshots are coming from. So, I mean, that, that sounds pretty good. But And you did mention that police enforcement do like this. I think part of the article you profiled, one police department that said, you know, we do like it. It's kind of useful, but we haven't used any of this data in any type of prosecutions or as evidence or anything like that. So how useful, the, the question still continues, right? How useful is it? Right. And I think that 97% figure is an important one to suss out a little bit. The company, ShotSpotter, cites this 97% accuracy rate, uses it in its marketing materials. And what it bases that on is the rate in which its customer police agencies tell them that there has been a false positive, meaning they got an alert that there was gunfire and it turned out to be not gunfire. And people who study police technology, scientists, academics, say that's not an accurate way to truly determine what the technology's accuracy is. There ought to be a more rigorous scientific validation study that isn't based upon simply police agencies, clients reporting back to them. And for all we know, there's no evidence that the company has done such a study in which it's testing in a scientific way whether its technology can determine how well it can distinguish gunshots from other loud noises. ShotSpotter is making quite a bit of money through all of this. They're also spending a lot of money on PR and lobbying efforts too. But one of the really interesting parts of this is that they're helping police departments petition for federal grant money so that they can pay for the use of this service. So you mentioned an average of 65000 to 90000 a year for a square mile of service. That's what they, ShotSpotter would be charging a local police department. So they're helping police departments petition to get that federal grant money so then they can use it. So and that's just kind of an interesting breakdown of how involved they are. Correct. I mean, ShotSpotter acknowledges that their technology is expensive and the biggest obstacle for potential clients to buying their technology is the price. And so they actively go out and look for ways in which to help potential clients afford their technology. So on one end, as we note in our article, they lobby the federal government for grants and other spending programs that can be used for gunshot detection technology. And at the other end, they go to local police departments, prospective clients, and say, hey, did you know this grant was available? We can help you apply for it. They'll even help actually write 
some of the applications or petition for that grant, and then they can't assume that the potential client is going to use that money then to buy ShotSpotter, but chances are it's going to ShotSpotter is by far the industry leader in this technology. This effort has been even bolstered by some support, it seems like, from President Joe Biden. Uh, I guess he mentioned that, you know, some communities can use money from the American Rescue Plan to pay for crime-fighting technologies, including gunshot detection systems. So they've kind of gotten this boost, at least from that. And, you know, we're starting to see a bunch of money pump through to these agencies because of it. Yeah, the interesting thing about the American Rescue Plan Act is that there are very few strings attached. So it's less rigorous than, say, a competitive grant from the Department of Justice. And so you have these tens of millions of dollars, depending on the size of the city, flowing in to local governments. And the president has said outright that gunshot detection technology is a legitimate way to spend this type of money. And so that's kind of opened the floodgates, not only on technology such as shot spotters, but also all kinds of police technology. It's opened up police to be able to buy all sorts of different types of technology with very little strings attached to how, how well that technology works. So where are we seeing some of these big contracts go to? You mentioned Houston, some renewals in New York and Denver, and they do tend to keep their customers right after a year of service. So the local police departments, the city councils, whoever's in charge about approving these deals, they tend to renew them. Right. They boast uh, 100% or very close to 100% um, retention rate. And it's because I think for a number of matters, people have talked to me about, and I've asked experts who follow this, why that is. One is, is that once a police agency purchases the technology, it's very difficult to get police to drop that technology. It becomes part of the fabric of their strategies, and it's very hard for them to accept dropping it. But also, they do. ShotSpotter does a very good job of what they call customer success, and they walk through and are very granular in the way that they help clients figure out the best ways to use their technology and, of course, finding new ways for them to pay for it, like additional federal grants once their initial contracts come up. A lot of what they have to do is run this PR legal blitz against, uh, you know, any criticism that they get. You mentioned the article. One of the biggest battles they had is against Vice Media, who said that uh, ShotSpotter is deployed in these largely black and Latino neighborhoods, and they spent a ton of money just fighting those lawsuits. They took that the Vice series of articles very seriously. They sued Vice for $300 million, and they've made it clear that, you know, they're going to be looking at all coverage of the company very closely to see if they feel that they've been treated unfairly. And that's just a piece of it. Their spending on legal increased quite a bit relative to what their overall uh, revenue is as a company. And they're also spending a lot more on PR and consultants, strategic consultants, to try to counteract the negative attention that they've gotten, whether it be critical coverage in the press, but also campaigns from civil rights advocates trying to persuade cities not to buy ShotSpotter products. John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.